0: According to Sputnik News, in an address to the nation today, Russian President Putin focused on a number of pressing issues related to the West's stance on Russia and Moscow's special military operation in Ukraine. For insight into this, we turn to our first guest. He's an international relations and security analyst based in Moscow, Mark Shloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back.
1: Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Critical Hour.
0: So President Putin said earlier today, quote, the purpose of this West is to weaken, divide, and ultimately destroy our country. They are already directly saying that in 1991 they were able to split the Soviet Union, and now the time has come for Russia itself and that it should disintegrate into morally warring regions. Mark, when I read the text of the speech the historical context in which he places these issues and the current uh, realities that we find ourselves dealing with. If you're not biased by Western media narrative, it's hard to argue with president Putin.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, there is a a long historical context and a present context for this historical context. Well, uh, immediately after world war one, uh, Western powers, the U.S., the United Kingdom, other European powers, and Japan uh, invaded the nascent Soviet Union in an attempt to uh, kill the Soviet Union, kill communism in its cradle, as it was referred to. This is often airbrushed or or simply forgotten out of Western histories. When it is mentioned, it's called. The polar bear expedition, which sounds right jaunty. Uh, of course, they were forced to withdraw uh, after uh, a, a couple years of uh, failed attempt uh, to uh, seize control of uh, so the Soviet Union or parts of it, at least. Um, and um, it, you know, you can really argue that that uh, you know set the tone. Uh, for relations between the West and the Soviet Union moving forward from there. Uh, Documents uh, obtained under the Freedom of Information Act have uh, highlighted that uh, in the 1950s, the US uh, not only supported but actually had the CIA on the ground in Ukraine, launching an insurgency by West Ukrainians, uh, many of them fresh out of the SS, uh, having having uh, yeah, welcomed uh, Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union in West Ukraine uh, and waged war on the rest of Ukraine in, in, in the process, um, the, the uh, U.S. tried to launch an insurgency with them uh, in the Soviet Union in the 1950s. Again, something that's not uh, commonly acknowledged or certainly not taught in Western history books. Uh, but, of course, that also failed and was crushed And that one actually has very direct relatives because many of those were the grandfathers of of many of the members of the uh, far right battalions uh, that are armed and funded by the Kiev regime backed by the U.S. today. So there's a long history and context for this. The more recent context, I mean, if we're not considering uh, the U.S. Um, uh, poking and prodding with the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union, um, is that we have heard numerous uh, top European officials discussing exactly that, um, uh, Western officials, uh, talking that uh, that Russia should be broken up. So that it is no longer a threat, a threat to Western global hegemony, I I suppose. Um, And uh, we have heard numerous uh, Western leaders say that Russia must be defeated, Russia must be humiliated. Uh, Biden has said that man cannot remain in power, directly invoking regime change. And we have had prominent uh, Western think tanks Uh, in D.C., attended by U.S. government officials, openly discuss breaking up Russia. I mean, that's that's what they're talking about. I mean, they called it the decolonization of Russia. Uh, And and this is something that, uh, you know, within the last year has openly been discussed by the foreign policy uh, elite, the blob, as Ben Robes called them in Washington. So what he's talking about is very real.
2: You know, one of the things I noticed is the term, the word that he uh, he used a word a lot in his speech, sovereignty, sovereign, a couple of words, independence. It made it clear that he was making the point not just for Russia, because he mentioned around the world that basically the U.S. empire doesn't respect sovereignty, doesn't respect independence. So it sounded like. Vladimir Putin and or the Russians see this as a um, a move to express sovereignty in a manner that it reflects on other countries throughout the world?
1: Yeah, I would say that the U.S. selectively, according to its own geopolitical interests, supports independence and sovereignty or does not. It supports the independence and sovereignty of Kosovo, carving up Syria, uh, Serbia to create a NATO protectorate narco state, which they handed over to the Kosovo Liberation Army, which even the U.S. had recognized as terrorists until right before they decided they were useful for carving up a part of Serbia. Um, uh, likewise, they use – evoke a lot of the same language for the YPG in Syria – because of their use for the moment as a proxy force, uh, for their occupation of East Syria. But The people of East Ukraine, uh, Danesk, Lugansk, the people of South Ukraine, uh, you know, particularly in the East, those who have lived under shelling uh, atrocities and repression, political repression across the East for the last eight years, those people do not deserve independence and sovereignty. They don't even have agency, right? Uh, They're just pro-Russian separatists. They don't deserve, they're not deserving of human rights or anything of the like because they have Pro-Russian points of view, values, uh, and, and and cultural traits. Uh, so w- w- we see the we see the hypocrisy. We see the selectivity of the U.S. use of this type of of rhetoric uh, when they choose to support these policies and when they don't, based completely on geopolitical interests and not at all on principle.
2: Uh, I would just say this real quick: the U.S. selectively supports the illusion Very of good. independence and sovereignty. Very good. Conditionally uh, right. upon uh, not actually being independent <laughs> and sovereign. Uh, well, because I, conditional sovereignty
1: What about a giant US military base in Kosovo? Does
2: <laughs> then you're sovereign? That makes you that's what makes you sovereign, isn't it? Military US Because con- conditional sovereignty is actually a
0: term that <laughs> that the policy elite here are using. And so y- conditional sovereignty is is you know it's, it's almost like uh the w- rules based order. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but <laughs> How not.
1: How could n- you possibly have sovereignty without a U.S. military base in your territory? Yeah, absolutely
0: sense. right. <laughs> absolutely right. So, not only did President Putin deliver a speech earlier today, but Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu delivered a speech where he said, in reality, we are fighting the collective West plus NATO. When we speak about it, we mean not only the weapons being supplied to Kiev in huge batches, but also about systems of communication and information processing systems. What does it—am I to take anything away from the fact that not only did President Putin give a speech, but the defense minister gave a speech as well? I can't imagine a situation here where Biden would give a speech and the secretary of defense— uh, I can't remember his name now—would would give a, would give a speech as well. On the same day about the same thing
1: yeah um it is i I think it reflects the seriousness the gravity of the situation which the russian government seems to finally be acknowledging in indeed its uh, previous rhetoric that they are in an existential war and it's belated but um uh you know better late than never um, that that's the way certainly the the opposition in Russia, the Communist Party, the Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, not liberal, not democratic, not really a party. But anyway, um, <laughs> so um, they um, you know, uh, certainly they've been calling for this for a long period of time. And the Kremlin has just uh, come around to it as for, uh, you know, um, the Austin. fact the fact – yeah, Lloyd Austin. The fact <laughs> that – how could you forget Lloyd Austin? Right. Uh, the fact that the um, – Russia is at war not just with a us backed client state but NATO uh, in total at this part of course has been denied by Jen stoltenberg we're we're not at war with Russia um, however the S- S- Prime Minister of Spain said the EU uh, is at war with Russia in total or Russia's at war with the EU in total one or what one or the other so a little more honesty there from there when your uh you know uh, your soldiers are being killed with NATO funding, NATO army, NATO training, NATO intelligence, CIA and uh, EU commandos on the ground directing those forces, NATO intelligence, NATO satellites, you know it's on and on. I'm sorry, your soldiers are being killed by NATO, whatever you may claim one thin degree or degree of remove of proxy Ukrainian conscripts between you and the forces that are uh, you know, being killed. We're at war. I mean, and that's not even counting the um, economic existential war that is being waged at the same time.
2: Mark, do you think because I keep thinking about this. And I'm just mean, so I just cut everybody off because that's the way I am. Do you think that this at some point, because I know it's going to take a few months to get this whole the the hammer together, because I think that's what it's going to be a hammer and they're going to hammer a nail. But my point is. Do you think at some point this is going to be accompanied with an escalation in the economic um, sphere where they just say, oh, by the way, all that fertilizer, agriculture, all that stuff you're getting from us, forget it. The door's closed. Forget about it. The door's closed. Or do you think they'll just keep taking the suckers' money as long as the suckers will give them their money? There's an argument to be made for that too, Mark.
1: Yeah, I'm, I, I think that, that Russia right now is busy lining up alternate buyers for as much as it can. And as soon as it feels ready, if it feels necessary, it will do that. I mean, Gazprom has released numbers. Uh, the It is selling less volumes to Europe, but making three times as much money <laughs> because of the blowback of the, of, of, of the uh, trying to cut Russia out of the global market has raised prices all around the world. And there are plenty of other buyers for Russia's resources, Um, you know, that whether we're talking oil and gas or fertilizer or coal or grain or one of the many other commodities that every country in the world needs um, in order for their uh, own economy and society to function. Russia, I mean, the West has made perfectly clear they intend to cut themselves off from oil and Russian oil and gas when they're ready. At their own pace. Well, there's really no reason for Russia, and we have seen them at the very least throttling the gas uh, to certain. Uh, EU states, principally uh, Germany, at the heart of, uh, of of course, European uh, Union economy and decision making, but other countries as well. If the West has weaponized their entire economies uh, and their control of the global financial uh, and economic uh, architecture against Russia, well, there's absolutely no reason for Russia to not return in, in kind and weaponize their own economy, uh, their commodities, uh, against the West when it plays to their interests.
0: Mark Schloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis and your flexibility. And we look forward to having you back.
1: I'm so flexible. (laughs) Not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Mark. (laughs) Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. According to Sputnik News, in an address to the nation today, Russian President Putin focused on a number of pressing issues related to the West's stance on Russia and Moscow's special military operation in Ukraine. For insight into this and to some other issues, we turn to our next guest. He's the editor-in-chief at the Duran.com and host of The Duran on YouTube, Alexander Mercurius. Alexander, as always, welcome back.
3: I'm delighted to be with you again.
0: So President Putin said the parliaments of the People's Republics in Donbass, as well as civil military administrations of the Kherson and Zaporozhye re- regions, have decided to hold the referendums on the destiny of these territories and appealed to Russia, asking to support this step. I stress that we will do everything to ensure security at the referendums for people to express their will End quote. Alexander, your thought on the speech, and it really seems as you re- as you read through the speech at various times, President Putin is saying, I really didn't want to go this route, but you've left me no choice.
3: That's, that is exactly correct. I mean, from Putin's point of view, from Russia's point of view, they spent eight years, nine years almost, trying to negotiate a solution to Ukraine's political crisis, which began with the overthrow of the democratically elected president of Ukraine, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, back in 2014. They've made every single attempt, they've done everything they possibly could to find a way to come to uh, a diplomatic, a negotiated solution to this problem. And they were trying, even as late as March, they came very close, or so they thought, to a final negotiated solution. They haven't had it. The West has been absolutely implacable. Whenever Ukraine itself has shown any interest in negotiations, it's been told not to negotiate by the West. The West is talking about victory over Russia. Putin said it very clearly. He sees this now as an existential issue for Russia. Many people in Russia think the same. They think that the fact that the West isn't interested in negotiations is because the West wants to break Russia up. And we've seen articles in the West and conferences and meeting places essentially say the same thing. So he said, look, with all of that exhausted, I am now left with no option. I'm going to recognize the will of the people of these regions to unify with Russia and I'm going to take my own decisions on the basis from this point on that negotiation, the option, the root of negotiation no longer exists.
2: I find a couple of things interesting, and one of which is he talked about something that I've discussed a, a while. That the West has no intent on, uh, you know, a, a resolution to this or security resolution that you can read, whether it's um Brzezinski's book or Rand Corporation papers or whatever. There are any number of documents and comments that have been made that make it clear they want to take Russia apart and take its resources. And he basically said to me, that's not going to happen. And before that happens, we'll all be gone. I mean, that's the way I heard it.
0: Before you respond, if I could add one thing, Garland. You're absolutely right but but Brzezinski is more than a book. Brzezinski whether it's the Grand Chessboard or the other one I can't remember the name of it, those are the foundations of American policy moving forward through what's her name the um uh, Albright Madeleine Albright who who was a Brzezinski acolyte, Hillary Clinton, who's an Albright acolyte.
2: Obama, who was a Brzezinski Brzezinski acolyte,
0: who was found for us by By, Brzezinski at Columbia University. So I'm just saying the books, those are the blueprint for American policy. Alexander.
3: That's uh, absolutely right, I mean, I agree with both of you gentlemen, that is exactly what he's saying. He's saying that uh, uh, compromise is impossible, the position of the United States and its leadership class is implacable, it's uh, wired to pursue this policy uh, right to the conclusion that you both said, basically, uh, subordinate us, break us up, seize our natural resources, defeat us on the battlefield. That's not going to happen, and ultimately, we are a nuclear power, and if you want to push that, those kind of policies to the points to the point of you know um, you know to their absolute final conclusion, then what you're risking is nuclear annihilation. It was actually a very clear speech, very forcefully expressed. It expresses opinions by the way, that most Russians agree with.
0: I'm glad you ended that with that sentence because in the West, the narrative is Putin is a dictator, Putin is an autocrat, Putin is a madman. But what I understand the reality to be is he's a very shrewd, powerful, astute politician who is balancing a number of interests in his own country and that these aren't quote unquote his decisions he's operating the same way um, the same way an american president would operate based upon the dictates and the outcomes of his
3: government I think that's exactly correct i mean i think that the first thing to say about this is that every single opinion poll that i've seen and Even Western commentators accept now that these opinion polls are correct, show overwhelming support for Putin from the Russian people, overwhelming uh, support for this special military operation that's been taking place in Ukraine for the entire direction of Russian policy in Ukraine. And uh, you're quite right. He has to take public opinion in his own country into account. He has to balance the various different views that take place there. I think that on policy towards the West, he has until very recently in Russian terms been amongst the most restrained and moderate of people in Russia. If you go around uh, the Russian street, if you talk to people, you know, how most people in Russia feel outside that very small, tiny minority of ultra liberals that you find in Moscow, you will find that they generally take a much harder line about relations with the West than Putin has done. And the exasperation, in fact, that has often been expressed with Putin is that he's uh, he temporizes, he procrastinates, he's not as hard line as most people would like.
2: Now, uh, someone that you're, I'm quite, I'm sure, quite familiar with, a uh, 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 former ex, uh, excuse me, former Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras. He recently said, well, you know, he did the, you know, pro forma, you know, uh, solidarity with Ukraine stuff. But then he said that apart from the civilians that are the biggest loser, the biggest loser is Europe, is the European Union, which he said clearly lacks leadership, vision and strategy. And he said, we need to reevaluate the sanctions. Were the measures correct or are we shooting ourselves in the foot? I think that's a rhetorical question. But your thought on that and Alexis Tsipras, you know, is it it, it, I don't know much about him after he left, but it is of of consequence that he particularly said
3: it. Yeah, I think he's reflecting Greek opinion. You must bear in mind there's going to be elections in Greece in 2023. And there is a political uh, uh, aspect to this because greek people are feeling under enormous economic and financial stress i received an email only earlier today from my brother in greece who lives in greece he tells me that electricity prices there have something like quadrupled and at the same time the government is now talking about energy rationing and he says people are being asked to pay for more more For electricity, even at the same time as they're going to be rationed, the supply of electricity. And of course, Greece itself is a Greek is an orthodox country. It's historically had friendly relations with Russia. So they are very sceptical. Greeks are very, very sceptical about this entire direction of policy in uh, uh, towards Russia, towards the whole Ukraine conflict. And that is why at this precise moment in time Tsipras is positioning himself as the person who's going to say, well, look, this has gone far enough. Let's uh, uh, try and bring this whole thing to uh, some kind of a and if you listen to his former finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, he's saying essentially the same thing, that this is not really uh, a policy that's working for Europe, certainly not working for Greece. Let's try and find some way out.
0: With you living in London and with you being having your finger on the pulse and, and your ear to the ground as you do, how dangerous politically is this going to be? For the elite po- political class, whether it be in Britain, in London, um, in in France, in Germany, uh, w- we keep saying here, winter's coming, folks are getting cold and and are going to be hungry, and industries are closing. How dangerous politically do you sense that? Uh, are is, are we are we engaging in hyperbole on our end or? come spring are we going to see a whole new europe
3: well we could do i I, I have to say that the political class in britain is very unified behind this policy i think they will work incredibly hard to try to keep everything on track I think anybody who speaks out and criticises these policies, there's a few people on the Labour Party, on the left of the Labour Party, who have done so. They basically get intimidated and threatened, and they are nervous to come and speak out uh, um, openly about this.
0: Yeah, but yeah, but, but my, but my question is, my, the the cold, yeah. hungry people in the street won't be yeah, intimidated. That that's well, so. Go ahead.
3: But, but that's the point. I mean, it, it's very likely that we're going to start to see protests. It's very likely that we're going to start seeing uh, um, people complaining, people becoming angry. And of course, if they sense that the political class is not responding, In any way to their concerns that it's more fixated with Ukraine Mm -hmm. than it is concerned with them that that's a very, very dangerous situation because it means that people will start looking for alternatives to the political class that they already have difficult to happen in Britain because the system here is so closed. But elsewhere in Europe, not so. Ah, I mean, there's been some very interesting developments in Germany, for example, where the left party, Die Linke, has just split or is in the process of splitting. And the person who is by far the most popular politician of Die Linke in Die Linke is coming up straightforwardly in opposition to these policies and seems to be gaining traction and seems to be in the process of setting up a new political movement which the indications are, suggest might actually attract a lot of support in Germany so you see that there are there are stresses and these stresses are certain to grow
2: what about what uh, if we could we got a, about 2 minutes your thoughts on the elections italy and sweden
3: yeah well right I, in sweden i think we have got to be clear i don't think this is yet going to make any difference in geopolitical terms. But the Swedish Democrats started as a very, very far right party. I mean, to be straightforward about it, they have had some uh, neo-Nazi, you know, Mm -hmm. origins. Um, Nonetheless, they've tried to get past that. they're now now pursuing policies which identify them very closely with the old policies of the formerly ruling Social Democratic Party of Germany. The very fact that they've come out second in an election in Sweden, again, reflects the desperation that many people in Sweden feel about the direction of events there. And one has to say that it's a sign, I think, of things to come. The same is in, it- in Italy. The brothers of Italy, who look like they're going to emerge as the biggest party in Italy, they have their origins in Italy's fascist politics, which still, still exists, they're still there. Not a party which once upon a time, you would have expected to make a political breakthrough. It has made that political breakthrough. Again, maybe they won't, will or they won't, who knows, change Italy's orientation with respect to this particular crisis. But the fact is, they are the only force in Italy, just like the Swedish Democrats, that have been in consistent opposition. And As people becoming desperate, people t- look to them, and that's why they look likely to win.
0: Alexander Mercurius, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Asia Times writes, SCO Summit did not show what you think it showed. China did not rebuke Russia. It endorsed the Allies' current modus operandi and left room for even greater expansion. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time his latest book is entitled The Counter Revolution of 1836 Texas Slavery Jim Crow and the Roots of American Fascism Dr. Gerald Horn as always sir welcome back
4: Thank you for inviting me
0: Before we get to the SCO story uh, in an address to the Russian nation earlier today President Putin focused on a number of pressing issues your thoughts on his speech as well as President Biden's speech
4: With regard to Mr. Biden's speech at the United Nations General Assembly, it reminded me of the headline from the Jimmy Carter era, where after a particularly unmemorable speech, the headline read, More Mush from the Wimp. And I think that that helps to characterize Mr. Biden. Uh, We should give him a cookie for being able to stumble through the speech with only a few gaps. And a few verbal, verbal mishaps. But in the longer scheme of things, I think that the headline, from my point of view, is his announcement that the United Nations would like to increase the size of the permanent and non permanent members of the United Nations Security Council. Now, obviously, this is a way to try to wrong foot Moscow in Beijing. I'm not sure how that's going to work out. But he said African countries. I take it it won't be South Africa. I take it that when President Ramaphosa visited him in the White House, this issue was floated. But I really don't think that Washington trusts the African National Congress and their South African Communist Party allies. It would be more rational from their point of view to select Nigeria, which, after all, has a larger economy than that of South Africa. It's the most populous nation on the continent but also is more subject to manipulation, uh, given the fractious relations between the Igbo, the Hausa, and the Yoruba, uh, that seems to be made to order for U.S. imperialism. With regard to South America, I don't see how he can avoid uh, selecting Brazil or nominating Brazil, I should say, although the inference I draw from that is that uh, perhaps this a larger, an enlargement of the already sizable U.S. embassy in Brasilia with a further complement of intelligence agents dispatched there, particularly if Lula da Silva is elected, or even if he is not elected in the next few days. I think that the enlargement of that embassy is preordained. Certainly India, as another Asian nation, would be on that list because The United States is betting heavily on India, although I'm not sure if that bet is going to work out. But in any case, I don't think they have any choice. But the the wider point that your audience should draw is that this is a kind of Hail Mary path of desperation by U.S. imperialism. It's like they're in a scrap and they feel that they need backup. But the backup have interests of all (laughs) their own, including the Nigerians. So I'm not sure how that's going to work out. Now, with regard to Mr. Putin's speech, I think to a certain extent it was inevitable in light of the apparent setback in Kharkiv. Uh, There was a lot of consternation uh, left, right, and center uh, in Moscow. As a result, if this works out as planned by Moscow, number one, with the referendum, in these formerly Ukrainian territories, soon to be Russian territory, that will mean that an attack on these territories will be considered to be an attack on Russia itself, which could lead to an escalation, which would draw an even clearer demarcation in terms of what's happening, which is that this will be uh, seen by most neutral observers even as a proxy war with NATO, not just Ukraine, on one side of the barricades, and Russia on the other. I'm looking to see what the response will be, not only in Washington, but in Poland and the Baltic republics, which are basically the tail wagging the dog. Just like the United States wants to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian, the Baltics and the Poles would like to fight Russia to the last U.S. taxpayer dollar. And so I'm wondering if they're going to put up or shut up. And somehow I think that they'll do neither.
2: On the, the subject of China, White House official says Biden comments on defending Taiwan speak for themselves. I think it is of consequence. I'd like to get your thoughts on uh, the Russia China strategic alliance that on the, in Samarkand, on the side um, lines of the SCO, um, Presidents Putin and Xi spoke. At length, apparently, um prior to this recent announcement, in the same way they spoke at length prior to the beginning of the special military operation, and um in view of that, what are your thoughts on uh President Biden's comments about defending Taiwan and the fact that the White House didn't back down this time like they did before, you know, back off of it
4: I think that they're trying to make a virtue out of Mr. Biden's verbal verbal mishaps. In other words, I think that as a columnist for the Wall Street Journal put it, uh, they're turning Mr. Biden's mishaps into part of their strategy. Uh, That is to say that Mr. Biden says that the United States will defend Taiwan, which seems to go against U.S. stated policy. The comment is walked back by White House staff. And that's happened more than once now. And I think that they're trying to throw the Chinese off balance, but I really just think they're throwing the Taiwanese off balance. With regard to China and Taiwan, in any case, what I find remarkable, particularly with regard to that article from the Asia Times that you're referencing, is that the mainstream press in the United States is becoming ever more untrustworthy. For example, from the Samarkand meeting in Central Asia, you would get the idea that there was a rift between Beijing and Moscow. You don't get the idea that clearly China sees Russia as a sort of firewall, and if heaven forfend, the Russia, the regime is toppled. That puts U.S. imperialism closer to taking uh, down the People's Republic of China and the Chinese Communist Party. And you see something similar with regard to India, because supposedly India reprimanded Mr. Putin publicly, let to say Prime Minister Modi. But it's clear that the relationship between India and Russia, as they say, is higher than the Himalayas, is sweeter than honey, and stronger than steel. And India, more to the point, relies upon Russia as a kind of firewall to protect it against China. And so you cannot rely, not that you ever should have relied, upon the monitoring of the mainstream press, which then brings me to this lunatic idea of putting an oil cap uh, on Russian energy exports to say that they're gonna have to sell it at the price mandated by the North Atlantic country, which is lunacy, or why should Russia bend to that? But what's even more remarkable in the New York Times article a day or so ago, the reporter did not even mention Saudi Arabia, uh, which will have a say on the price of oil, which is not necessarily in favor of taking the pricing of oil out of their hands. And once again, you just cannot rely even more than usual on these U.S. press organs. And I think what that bespeaks is the kind of hysteria that's slowly spreading. Like a film dissolved in a movie, you see a new scene emerging with a new balance of forces and a new correlation of forces. And perhaps understandably and justifiably, the fact that this new correlation of forces may be crowned and headed by Beijing and Moscow is something that is frightening and causing delirium in the North Atlantic capital.
0: In fact, to your point, the Asia Times article points out combined with anecdotal evidence of Xi's supposed displeasure and Russia's public rebukes in the SEO, some Western analysts have rapidly concluded that the Sino Russian entente is off. This conclusion comes from poor analysis. In fact, Xi's statement and its surrounding actions indicate tacit acceptance of Russia's war. The Sino Russian entente flourished even more so than in February. The West risks being hoodwinked by wishful thinking. I wanted to, uh, as we have a couple minutes left, go to this other Asia times piece, Cambodia, not quite yet in a China debt trap. Cambodia's public debt is manageable for now, but 50 billion spending plans and rising U.S. Rates are quickly changing the equation. So what, this, what I take away from this is that the United States is now even going to wind up forcing Cambodia into the embrace of China. Your thoughts?
4: Well, that'll be another impact of this ham-fisted foreign policy coming out of Washington. But I must alert your audience to what I saw in France 24 just a few moments ago. The lights are already being dimmed in Belgium and in Greece and in other European nations. This is direct result of this crazed policy with regard to waging war against your major energy supplier of being Russian. Recall that in 1914, a prominent European diplomat said that after that war began, that's when the lights began to be dimmed in Europe. I'm afraid to say that this is happening already, quite literally. I'm not sure if I've mentioned this before, but let me say it here. Do not be surprised if the European Union uh, begins to pay money to the estate of the late Philadelphia crooner Teddy Pendergrass and adopting his signature song. Turn, Turn the lights the, <laughs> Light a <candle. laughs> You laugh now, but the Europeans will not be laughing soon.
0: Or you could go with Dandy Don
2: Meredith at the end of Monday Night Football. Turn out the lights. The party's over. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, it, the situation's uh, situation doesn't look good for them, and and I suspect that that will have a significant. Um, effect on support for their leaders continuing to push the Ukraine narrative about uh, 45 seconds?
4: Well, I I think many of the leaders are dead meat. I mean, look at Boris Johnson, look at the close scrape endured by President Macron, look at Mario Draghi, driven out of office in Italy. So with regard to Chancellor Schultz, I think he's next on that ignominious list.
0: And quickly, the shift then to the right because many of the in many of these countries it's right-wing candidates that are now taking the helm particularly
4: in italy with the elections coming up uh, within a few days it's quite uh, dangerous that a neo fascist will be elected from the so-called brothers of italy which happens to be headed by a woman georgia Maloney, and bringing back into influence the silvio berlusconi who we thought we had discarded into the dustbin of history
0: (laughs) Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Washington Post reports supersized rate hikes are the Fed's new normal. Just three months ago, the Federal Reserve chief described a three-quarter point hike as unusually large. The third one of the year is expected this week. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a professor in economics and politics at St. Mary's College in California. He's the author author of The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump, Dr. Jack Rasmus. As always, Jack, welcome back. Glad to join you. So the post continues. When the uh, Federal Reserve first raised interest rates by a whopping three quarters of a percentage point in June, Federal Reserve Chair Powell said the hike was an unusually large one. I do not expect moves of this size to be common. Just three months later, the Fed is poised to do the same thing again for the third consecutive time. And here's the thing that I found very interesting, Jack, listening to, I can't remember what the news report was last night. As they were talking about this next anticipated rate hike, one of the things they said was the Fed has been unable up to this point to curb inflation, Well, that says to me the definition of stupidity is doing the same thing time and time again and failing and expecting a different result. So this to me, they're in their own narrative. They're explaining their failure, but they seem to be unable to recognize it. Dr. Jack Rasmus.
5: Yeah, well, I'll go one step further with you. You Okay. What did he say, uh, Powell, say today? He said, Oh, we can't do anything really about food or gasoline prices. Well, what the hell? I mean, most of the inflation is food and gasoline, Mm -hmm. right? Right. So, what the hell are they raising rates for, you might ask, you know, if they can't do anything about uh, what's really. I mean, by the way, food prices up uh, 13.5% in the last report, Uh, gas prices still up 26%. And if you notice, gas prices are drifting up a little bit at least out here in California so this little uh, uh tick downward over the summer is ended i think and you're going to see uh, gas prices sl- more slowly rise but uh, certainly not not continue to fall uh well you know as i've been saying the uh, inflation has three main compositions one is you have a demand factor as the economy opened up people got Jobs, and you know, even if they're mostly low paying, uh, and uh, uh, that drove up uh, prices, particularly for services, which they've uh, not been able to purchase during COVID as much as normal. Uh, So, demand is about one third. About one third is also supply chain problems that still hang over from COVID, but were exacerbated significantly in the energy commodity sector by the sanctions uh, on Russia and the war. Uh, and then, about a third of it is just outright price gouging by corporations. and and when, uh, taking advantage of the inflation and the expectations of inflation, uh, monopolistic corporations by, you know, in, in particular, you know, those those companies, that three or four of them control the, the industry that they're in, you know, like uh, chicken producers and uh, cereals, bread and so forth. You know, three or four companies in the U.S. dominate that. Uh, they're the ones that are jacking up prices. In fact, you know, chicken uh, is up uh, like 17% chicken prices you know it's not that there's a problem of uh, demand increases people eating so much more chicken no uh it's a supply thing that the companies are are manipulating the same thing with the cereal companies the bread companies you know the grain companies and you can look at that across the board and uh, there's a lot of that going on and uh he Powell, is going to do nothing about that. He said he can't do anything about that, right? I mean, that's market power, that's concentration, uh, that's monopolistic uh, uh, you know control of uh, markets and the economy, and then, of course, they're certainly not going to do anything about the war and the sanctions. In fact, they're working on trying to intensify the sanctions finally uh raising in in the senate oh we got to go after secondary sanctions you know if it doesn't work uh, uh trying to prevent uh, russia from selling its oil and its uh, gas and its uh, commodities uh then we got to go after those countries who are buying it right secondary sanctions and boy are they now on thin ice if they go that direction uh and they're trying to set the market price <laughs> um in in oil and gas and commodities, you know, they're, they're, the the G seven is so crazy. They think they can they can set the price contrary to what the markets determine. You know, I mean, talk about you know anti laissez faire mm. when it comes to their interests. Uh, that's going to fail, but but it shows you how desperate they're getting with regard to the sanctions. But the sanctions mean. Companies that are involved in the supply chain uh, for oil and commodities think something is coming, they got an excuse, you know, the shippers up their costs, the ship insurers up their costs, all along the supply chain, they're all raising their costs, and of course, You get the problem here in the U.S., but the Fed and monetary policy interest rate hikes can do nothing about supply problems. It can only attack demand side, and that's only a third of the inflation. But they're going to take the inflation out on the backs of consumers and small businesses instead of addressing the two-thirds where it really exists. And that's the reality, because under neoliberal capitalism, monetary policy is the bludgeon uh, when it comes to inflation. They will not raise the taxes, uh, you know, the $5 trillion that they gave in tax cuts or more uh, to uh, corporations and investors since 2018. Oh, no, no, neither party will raise those taxes. They could dampen inflation that way, but not fiscal policy, no. No, it's all monetary policy. The Fed is the weapon.
2: You know, we've got an article and it speaks about um, Biden hopes the Fed can tame inflation without triggering a recession. That won't be easy. It's uh, a Washington Post article now. I'm not by any stretch of an imagination an economist but I know that the Fed raising interest rates is not going to tame an inflation it's going to create an inflation I mean it's it's going to uh, excuse me tame a recession it's going to create or exacerbate a, the recession that we're already in I find it hard to believe in this argument that President Biden who has economic advisors around him and the economic advisors If I know that, they don't know that. Am I wrong in suspecting that they intend to create a recession and increase unemployment in hopes to at least um, settle things down enough so they can get it back under control, which, of course, it won't?
5: Yeah, you're 100 percent right. Yeah, they know. I mean, they're not stupid. They know what they're doing. Look, at the beginning of the year, they said, oh, you know, there's not going to be any, uh, any recession. Oh, about June came. Oh, well, you know, it'll be mild. We'll have a soft landing. Uh, well, you know, the Bank of America economists uh, just said today that the window for a soft landing is almost closed. And that was before this rate hike. Mm-hmm. Now it is closed uh we we're in a recession there's no doubt you know they're playing with definitions of what a recession is um but we're clearly drifting into the recession uh no doubt about it in my mind the only question is how deep and how long it will go and the longer they raise race the more they're going to push it into recession and by the way the longer they keep these this war going you know which that shows no end in sight either uh, uh the more it's going to uh result in, in uh, energy price increases, inflation will stay high. Uh, see, if if the demand uh, from the Fed, if, if demand inflation is only about a third of the total, if the Fed precipitates a recession, yeah, it'll take out the demand side of inflation. Yeah, it'll do that, but you'll still have the supply side and the war will keep that supply and the sanctions will keep that supply side going. You're gonna have a recession as I predict, uh, with, in 2023, chronic continuing inflation of 4 to 5%. That's my my prediction.
0: There's an interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal. Natural gas prices push European manufacturers to shift to the U.S. The war in Ukraine is driving up energy costs in Europe, while relatively stable prices and green energy incentives are luring companies to the U.S., Are you seeing this really happening, Jack, or is this more spin by The Wall Street Journal? Uh, What specifically
5: in your comment? The moving to the U.S.
0: or the rising
5: energy crisis? The winner, the moving to the a big
0: winner for the from the energy crisis in Europe is the U.S. economy battered by skyrocketing gas prices. European countries that make steel fertilizer and other feedstocks of economic activity are shifting operations to the U.S. Do you see that happening?
5: Uh, I think that that uh, is a possibility. I don't see it happening right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you you could have some of that happen. Look, you know, w- when I wrote in January last year uh, a piece that was entitled 10 Reasons Why the U.S. Uh, Wants Russia to Invade Ukraine. <laughs> One of those 10 reasons was to drive Russia out of the European economy, not mm-hmm. just energy, but totally in all ways and shapes. And guess what? Create a vacuum for American companies to step right. In and pick up for pennies on the dollar, uh, the uh, you know, whatever Russia ha- has left behind, and that's happening right now. And part of that means, uh, okay, Germany, you got no more natural gas from Russia, we'll be glad uh, the U.S. to provide you natural gas, uh, of course, at uh, higher market prices. And that's exactly what's happening. What's happening with Europe is it's becoming an economic appendage of the United States as mm. a result of this. We mm-hmm. already see it has no foreign policy anymore. It's just an appendage of NATO, and NATO's an appendage of the U.S. alliance with the ultra radical uh, East European, uh, latest members of NATO, U.S., and those. You know, Poland and Baltics are running the show in NATO right now, and Germany and France are the tail enders, right? Uh, so, politically, Europe has no independence, but economically, in another decade, it will have none either whatsoever. Uh, and of course, the, the, the worst case uh, uh, over there is the UK. So, do you see
0: this as being, could, th- could this shift from Europe, to the United States, as you talk about, as as Biden talks about, jobs are coming back to the United States. Uh, Is this what he's talking about? I mean, is this, is this, could this be a permanent move or is it just happening on a small scale and it's not going to have that dramatic of an impact on the U.S. economy?
5: Well, the policy of uh, the U.S. elites, Biden and all the others, is to bring back to U.S. uh, critical uh, tech and other production, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, They want to get it the hell out of Asia in particular, especially semiconductor chips. That's why they passed this $280 billion slush fund uh, that they're giving to tech companies. That's really a lure to come back to the U.S., you see? And also they're offering... um, Taiwan uh, semiconductor companies to come to the U.S. as well. They're, they're You know, the critical strategic goods producing, they're trying to bring it back, uh, okay. you know, into North America. And mm-hmm. Europe's part of that. Europe's part of okay. that. But Asia, even more so.
0: Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. I'm always available. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon.
2: Thank you, Wilmer.
0: As you all know, uh, we've been discussing the fact that earlier today, President Putin addressed the Russian nation, and he focused on a number of pressing issues related to the West's stance on Russia and Moscow. And so for further insight into this, we turn to our next guest. Uh, he's a former CIA analyst, ran the Russian desk for the CIA, co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, Ray McGovern. As always, Ray, welcome back.
6: Thank you, Wilmer.
0: Your thoughts on uh, President Putin's speech? As as I read the excerpts of the speech, with the historic context in which he put a lot of his a uh, lot of his points into. I read that speech and and not only with the historical context, but even also then understanding a lot of the uh, dialogue and diatribe from Tony Blinken and from from President Biden. Putin's comments are hard to argue with.
6: Well, now uh, you run the, the risk of being called uh, uh, in Putin's pocket, as I have been called. So uh, let's just go at it. Those are good questions.
0: Well, let me let me just okay? yes, we can. Let me just quickly respond and say I've been called worse by better. Go ahead.
5: <laughs>
6: <laughs> well, uh, this is a big. This is big news. I mean, uh, this is a new stage. You know, you. Um, Uh, Scott Ritter, my good friend and who is often on programs like this with me, uh, talked uh, uh, about a game changer. And that was a couple months ago. And he was ridiculed and assailed and usual. It happens to Scott all the time. What do you mean a game changer? You think NATO is going to win? And Scott had to explain, no, I don't (laughs) think Ukraine is going to win. What I'm saying is that the US is up the ante by saying they're going to supply all manner of, what was it, $50 billion of, of weaponry? My God, that's a game changer, all right? Now, so far, um, the US has been rather discreet, and uh, Biden has said he doesn't want to get war with Russia. And then he says, well, <clears throat> I'll give him these HIMARS. High HIMARS high sounds sexy, doesn't it? Uh, high-mobility uh, anti-aircraft missiles, okay, or systems. Now, they can go 50 miles. That's a lot. But it's not 190 miles, which some of the projectiles that could fit into HIMARS can go. So the U.S. did draw this line and say, okay, 50 miles is 50 miles. We're not going to let. 190 miles to go into play here, because that would mean that the Ukrainians, the crazy ones, could uh, knock out that bridge at Kerch, where which connects the Russian mainland to Crimea. They could do more havoc in Crimea. Now we're going to limit it to 50 miles. So what happened? Well, Foreign Minister Lavrov six weeks ago said 50 miles, huh? Well, this is a formal statement he made. Okay, um, we have just changed our purview. We would have been satisfied with taking the Donbass and making sure that those Russian speakers in uh, in Donetsk and Luhansk are not shelled every day. But now we have to move, geography requires us to move much farther north and much farther west. Why? Hi Mars, if you can shoot that darn thing fifty miles, well, geography dictates that we have to go further. So the the lines have changed. Well, what what? How did the U.S. react to that? Well, now there's a New York Times article out there which looks like a you know kind of a feeler raising up the flag. Maybe we'll give them the 190 mile thing. You know, maybe we'll we're considering that. But Biden wasn't. So what happened here is that Ukraine tried to convince the the West, the U.S. and the Germans, that uh, you know th- their army is still alive, and that's the, the important parcel of the uh, counteroffensive that the Ukrainians have mounted in Kherson and up there uh, farther north. Uh, but you know they're sitting ducks; they're not going to get very far. Uh, the Russians probably have lured them in. And uh, Putin and, and Lavrov are saying, oh my God, you know, this is really getting out of hand. And so what we're going to have to do is make sure that we guard not only against high Mars and longer range rocket systems, but that we have to make sure that we protect, protect the four provinces. They call them oblasts. Okay. There are regions in Ukraine that are about to hold referenda, okay? A referendum, each one of them, on whether to join Russia, not to be an independent state anymore, but to actually join Russia. Whoa, that's big. Why is that big? Well, obviously, if you attack part of Russia, that's different from attacking Russian-speaking people in Donbass or in southern Ukraine. So Putin himself has upped the ante, and now he's put flush behind it by saying, well, maybe up to 300,000 more people, well, more men uh, will be uh, sent into Ukraine to secure these boundaries and make sure that these counteroffensives, such as they are, supported first and foremost by the US, don't make real headway. So the issue is joined. Uh, this is a big deal, and uh, my point here is that the the operative factor here, as far as we American citizens are concerned, is that eighty percent of the American people are totally in the dark about this whole business, and therefore. Can be easily led down the primers' path, just as in Vietnam and other instances of this kind, to support a feckless war that this time involves a major enemy with nuclear weapons. It couldn't get much worse than that. I have an article in preparation here, which I'm which I'm trying to. Well, I take I titled it "Brainwashed for War with Russia," and what I'm trying to do is, in one last gasp just give american readers three or four uh, links okay uh, maybe it's a speech maybe it's a, a video not very long if they look at those links they'll see that they've been misled on this and if you go back to 2014 when john Muirsheimer to his very to his great credit had that article uh, uh, published in foreign affairs quote why the Ukraine crisis is the West's fault, end quote. Well, I'll just finish up by saying that if there are historians that uh, survive what's what's about to come in terms of war, uh, they'll have to give due credit to John Mearsheimer because he is among the, the very few historians that saw this for what it was. All the rest of them played ball with the security services. And the and the executive arm of our government.
2: Well, Ray, you did say it couldn't get worse. I'll have to take umbrage with that. <laughs> Uh, here's an interesting article from TASS. Russian Security Council Secretary Nikolai Petrusev will visit China on Monday and they go on to say they're going to have consultations on strategic stability, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we certainly know that uh, President Xi and President Putin met t- last week at the si- in Samarkand on the, the sidelines of the SCO. You have from the very beginning spoken of— Russia's economic big brother, China. Now, um, you know the Biden, Joe Biden's running around again, saying, "Oh, we will, you know, protect Taiwan from China." In view of what's going on in, um, you know, with this speech and what's happening with Biden making those comments, Petruchev going to China. Put all that stuff together, Ray. Make some sense out of that for for us.
6: Well, there was an immensely important uh, summit that took place in Samarkand. Uh, exactly a week ago. And this was the second second meeting in person um, between uh, President um, Xi of China and President Putin of Russia. Now, they didn't make a big deal of it, but it was very clear that they emphasized uh, what has been the case now for almost a full year, namely, their alliance is described as something exceeding that's the word exceeding a normal alliance and in february february 4th of this year they said it has no upper end okay now that came through in spades in what these gentlemen said to one another and how they played it up it came through in spades in what putin did in that press conference he had afterwards Uh, so what i'm saying here is that uh, what the Western media and their continuing an attempt to deceive the American public, they, they took one phrase out of context. Putin, in his introductory remarks, said, you know, we, we understand. We understand that the Chinese are, are, are interested and they're concerned about what, what's going on in Ukraine. Aha! Chinese are concerned. Oh, Fissures in the Sino-Russian relationship, fissures becoming cave, becoming caverns. Oh, man, they're at each other again. They're disunited. Nothing, nothing could be farther from the truth. Now, Petrushev, his his consultations with his opposite number uh, in Beijing are really, really important. Because you know, that's the security angle of these things. He's the head of their national security apparatus, and they're going to get and make sure that not only the military, but the security folks are in, in sync. Now, I'll mention one other thing. Biden's most recent uh, uh, unambiguous ambiguity about, you know, if Russia, if China attacks Taiwan, we will defend and we'll send U.S. boys and girls there, okay? Now, what's that all about? China's not going to attack Taiwan, okay? Joe Biden has the midterm elections coming up. He's trying to put big boy pants on. He's trying to seem very assertive. And so he's got a straw man here. If China attacks Taiwan, how? And what? you know what's going to happen? Because Joe Biden has been so strong on this, he's going to brag before the 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 elections there in November, look, (laughs) we stopped China from invading Taiwan, and we're stopping Russia from going farther in Ukraine. Well, you know, this is a feckless effort. This is really bad. And as I'm saying, the worst thing is that the American people have been conditioned. They're brainwashed, just the way that Romney put it on Vietnam. They've been brainwashed to consider Russia and pooching himself, the devil incarnate. Now, six years of that makes them so malleable, makes them so credulous that all Blinken or, or Sullivan or this guy, Kirk Campbell, who does not think about China but is in charge of it, all they have to do is say, oh, you know, we're going to war. Yeah, we're going to get high Mars, so bigger high Mars, And the Americans will believe Mm -hmm. that this is necessary. Mm -hmm. And therein lies the danger, it seems to me. And that's what I'm writing about today. Well, as always,
0: Ray McGovern, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. And um, we look forward to reading that piece tomorrow.
6: Thank you very much.
0: We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Uh, In an address to the nation earlier today, President Putin focused on a number of pressing issues related to the West's stance on Russia and Moscow's special military operation in Ukraine. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island, specializing in Ukraine and Russia, Professor Nikolai. Petro, Professor Petro, as always, thank you so much for your time.
7: Nice to be back.
0: Uh, President Putin said, "We talk about the aggressive policy of a number of the Western elites who are striving with all their might to maintain their dominance." And for this purpose, they are trying to block or suppress any sovereign independent centers of development in order to further brutally impose their will on other countries and nations to plant their fake values. Professor Petro, your thoughts on the speech earlier today?
7: Well, it is clearly an appeal by the president for more support. And um, it now would clearly seem to indicate that there is no negotiated solution uh, uh, in the uh, near-time perspective, but that rather um, the issues between not just Russia and Ukraine, but Russia and the West over Ukraine – Will indeed be, um, have to be resolved on the battlefield, on the, on the battlefield of Ukraine.
2: Um, I'd like to ask you this. Um, you know, the SCO meeting was big last week regarding, um, certainly economic issues, the economic war, as it were, but we also hear that. President Putin spoke on the side with uh, President Erdogan, and he had a significant discussion with President Xi Jinping of China. We know that uh, President Putin met with uh, Xi Jinping just before the start of the special military operation or whatever we're calling it this week. I don't know, whatever. But at any rate, um, your thoughts on the dynamics of the China-Russia strategic alliance, how that plays in here, if it or if it plays in. I
7: think it. It does. Um, It is enormously important for Russia that China has been broadly supportive, uh, and its support is most important in not participating in the Western-imposed sanctions. So this basically forces Russia to turn geopolitically toward China, and away from Europe. Whether or not this is a good thing has been debated in Russian uh, history for centuries, really. It was always assumed by the westernizing, the westernized elite of Russia, that Russia belonged culturally and therefore politically and economically in the West. But it was never truly thought through, what if the West spurned that offer of uh, being part of the Western family? What would Russia choose? The assumption seems to be in the West that Russia has no choice but to appeal to the West for membership and uh and well frankly that has turned out to be false and the long term consequences of this for the west uh, are yet are yet to unfold but they they certainly don't look good for the preservation of um western economic and political dominance
0: Tash reports Russia is at war not only with Ukraine but with Collective West. Russian Defense Minister uh, Shoigu uh, expressed that sentiment. uh, The the article says Russia at the moment is conducting combat operations not only with Ukraine's armed forces but with the Collective West. Quote, I cannot but emphasize the fact that today we are at war not so much with Ukraine and the Ukrainian army as with the Collective West. Talk about the – what does that mean – when the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, gives a speech and then the same day his defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, gives his own speech. It's hard for me to imagine President Biden giving us giving a speech of the nature similar to what Putin did. And then the secretary of defense comes behind him and gives his own speech are there signals being sent there that we should pay attention to
7: No I don't I don't think so because I don't see any important divergence between their respective messages um both of them concur that um uh, that uh, this is a battle between Russia and the West over Ukraine um And it seems logical to me that uh, they have their respective division of responsibilities. Putin is responsible for the overall strategy and uh, delivering the political message to the country, whereas the Minister of Defense elaborates on the military significance of this strategy without, obviously, either of them going into great details about what they're going to do. Uh, the, the the idea is, well, let the enemy keep guessing, but um, we understand that there is no compromise. Both of them, I think, would agree in saying that there is no compromise short of uh, what, what Russia uh, itself has to view as a victory. And this sets up a confrontation with those in the West— that demand a clear military victory for the West over Russia, Uh, which, again, one of the interesting things in Putin's speech, it seems to me, is that he didn't label the whole West as the enemy of Russia. He said there are parts of the West that are seeking to divide, conquer, and ultimately destroy Russia. And they have always been there, only now they are acting openly to uh, promote this agenda. But he did not say that this refers to the entire West, therefore holding out, if you will, the prospect of negotiating at some point with leaders who would be willing to compromise and and take account of Russia, what Russia sees as its vital security interests.
2: Let's talk about the factors surrounding what's going on. With two new polls: Morning Consult, Consult, and Concerned Veterans. Only 17 percent of Americans are concerned or they found that are concerned about, quote, defending democracy around the globe. Also, the Concerned Veterans for America poll found that they according to their poll. Again, I can't vouch for the polls, but these are the polls that are being reported to by the Libertarian Institute. F- only 15 percent of American public support sending more military and financial aid to Ukraine than wealthy Euro- European countries, with almost twice as many people, 34 percent, wanting to send less assistance. As this thing drags on, we see the numbers inevitably dropping of support from the U.S. And of course, you've got the issue in Europe of significant economic pain. Your thought about how these things affect the conflict?
7: Yeah, I I think you're right. I think there will be a weakening of support um, as the conflict draws out as Russia uh, becomes more engaged and simultaneously the prospect of a direct military confrontation with Russia, uh, between Russia and NATO and Russia and the United States, uh, rises. Um, One of the things uh, that uh, frightened me in Putin's speech was where he said, uh, we are taking note of the fact that um, certain Western leaders are openly saying that uh, they wish to attack Russia um, and deprive it of uh, any sort of sovereignty this is uh, this is a very big concern that Putin has always mentioned, and as he and as he reiterated, in the event of a threat to our territorial integrity or to defend Russia and its people, we will make use of all weapon systems available to us. And then he adds, this is not a bluff. So I I actually believe that if he perceives that uh, Russia will be forced to capitulate, uh, then he will respond directly uh, to this as a threat to Russian sovereignty. So uh, the ball is really, I guess, uh, to some extent, in the Western court now, um, now that Russia has raised the ante and by um, increasing its long-term military uh, involvement in, uh, the, in Ukraine by calling up, I think it's roughly 300,000 reserves. Again, Putin indicated that this was always a possibility several weeks ago when he said, essentially, we have not yet begun to fight, but if forced to, we will draw on our reserves. And, and we really haven't touched those reserves yet. So uh, it's really up to the West how important How important is um, Western – how would you say it uh, – Western – control or dominance over Ukraine to the West. How important is that? Uh, because Russia says, as I understand it, uh, r- Russia uh, having uh, a, at least a neutral, if not a friendly Ukraine, is, is of, a, is of a essential interest to, uh, to Russia.
0: We have just about a minute and a half left in this Libertarian Institute article. They talk about the Biden White House has built its foreign policy, moving away from fighting wars against terrorism to great power competition. But when it seems that the focus is on great power competition, it's the United States that seems to be trying to pick the fights instead of end the fights. Am I off here? I mean, when I look at what's going on with Taiwan, uh, China isn't really talking about invading Taiwan. The United States keeps talking about that and what we now see happening in Ukraine.
7: War is the continuation of politics by other means. Mm-hmm. Uh, said Klausitz. So in that context all nations try to set the stage and pick the fights that they think they can win. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing terribly new here. It, uh, what, what is perhaps disconcerting is that a lot of analysts look at the United States and see a country that is stretched rather thin mm-hmm. uh, internationally. And um, Uh, in terms of also the domestic resources and unity that it has and financial resources that it can bring bring to to bear. Mm -hmm. Because the pressure on the United States globally is on many, many different fronts. Mm -hmm. And that's something that our best statesmen have always tried to avoid. If we if we were going to pick a fight, we wanted to make sure that we were primarily focused on that one fight and not distracted from it by having uh, six other things uh, to worry about. Mm-hmm. This is a problem right now because I think we may have a disconnect in the White, uh, in the white House between uh, the perception of what our capabilities are and what our real okay. capabilities are globally. And the best example, evidence of that is essentially the the Uh, inability to to manage sanctions against Mm -hmm. Russia in a way that harms Russia more than the West.
0: Professor Nikolai Petro, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. According to Sputnik News, as we've been discussing in an address to the nation on Wednesday, Russian President Putin focused on a number of pressing issues related to the West's stance on Russia and Moscow's special military operation in Ukraine. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer, author of of disarmament in the time of perestroika. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War, and from 91 to 98, a chief weapons inspector with the UN in Iraq, Scott Ritter. As always, Scott, welcome back. Thanks for having me. President Putin said, I consider it necessary to take the following decisions. They are fully adequate to the threats we face, namely to protect our motherland, its sovereignty and territorial integrity, to ensure the security of our people and people in the liberated territories. I consider it necessary to support the proposal of the Ministry of Defense and the general staff on conducting partial mobilization in Russia. Uh, Your thoughts on the speech, Scott, and what message is being sent by President Putin?
8: Well, I think one can safely say that Putin has not been um, overreactive um, when it comes to the special military operation. Uh, Many observers, including myself, have been surprised by the uh, restraint that uh, Vladimir Putin and the Russian government and indeed the Russian Ministry of Defense have shown in the conduct of the special military operation. Some would say likened it to tying one hand behind their backs. um, the, the Chechen leader Kadurov uh, back in March pleaded with Putin. Uh, Untie our hands, he said. Let us do this. We can get this done. But Putin didn't because the special military operation was exactly that a special military operation. I think what we saw, and uh, we, we, we discussed this previously, that the Ukrainian offensive that began on or about September 1st and um, carried on for two weeks, uh, marked a fundamental change in the reality of the conflict in Ukraine. One where we transitioned away from a Ukrainian military trained and equipped by NATO to a NATO military manned by Ukraine. And this has been deemed by uh, Vladimir Putin and the Russian Ministry of Defense and the general staff as uh, a game-changing transformation, one that, if left unchecked, Could in fact threaten uh, the security of the uh, of the Russian homeland uh, and the Russian people, the Russian nation, and the Russian nation is beyond simply the Russian Federation. It represents people of different ethnicities who share a common history, culture, language, religion, and the people that reside in the territories of Ukraine currently occupied by the Russian military constitute the Russian nation. So. Uh, Putin has determined that it um, has agreed with the recommendation. I think the Russian military recognized it too. I mean, they suffered, in my opinion, a humiliation with the loss of Kharkov, and with that humiliation came a recognition that if they are to achieve uh, the objectives set forth by. Vladimir Putin in initiating the special military operation, denazification, demilitarization, uh, Ukraine neutral in perpetuity. Uh, that they're going to need more forces. They had insufficient forces uh, available to the task being assigned. Um, they they chose uh, a path, uh, partial mobilization, which is sort of a um, uh, an in between. Um, you know, some people were recommending that uh, Russia maintain the special military operation and simply seek to recruit using uh, volunteers, uh, as such along the lines of the 85,000 volunteers that have been trained by the Chechens in their special military facilities uh, to date. Um, other people spoke of a general mobilization, which would tap into the totality of Russia's 25-billion-man reserve component. Um, But I believe that if you went general mobilization, that that would be self-defeating because you would have um, massive disruption of the Russian economy. So they've chosen a middle ground, partial mobilization, around 1% of its uh, mobilization capacity, 300,000 personnel, all of whom have previous military experience, will be brought to in service, not as conscripts, but as contracted soldiers. Uh, They will sign a standard service contract for the duration of the conflict. Um, Moreover, it appears that these won't be frontline troops. These troops will be brought in to secure the borders of the Russian Federation and to provide strategic depth to the territories currently encompassing the special military operation. This will free up uh, the principal uh, frontline forces of, of, of Russia and its allies to focus purely on um, closing with and destroying the Ukrainian uh, enemy. Now, in addition to this, uh, this is being linked with, or, or, or happening in parallel with, a decision to conduct referendum in the um, Donbas regions, Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republic, and the occupied territories, Kherson, Zaporizhia, and others that um, where the Russian troops currently uh, control. The idea is that uh, they're going to a vote in favor of joining the Russian Federation. And it's, uh, Putin has made it clear that uh, once these referendum are completed, and they're expected to take place between September 23rd and September 27th, that the Russian parliament, the Duma, will, uh, will approve, Putin will sign on, and suddenly we have a new Russia. Uh, and this is the sad reality of the Ukrainian conflict. Because as Putin said in his speech, uh, this is all on the West. <laughs> Don't blame Russia for any of this. Russia tried their best to avoid a conflict. They provided several diplomatic paths uh, leading away from conflict. They were stymied the entire time by Ukraine and the West, which thieved Russia into believing that the Minsk process was legitimate, what now we know is simply buying time uh, so that NATO could train the Ukrainian army to forcefully retake the Donbass. Uh, the special military operation was supposed to be uh, low-key uh, to achieve limited demilitarization, uh, and denazification, but instead NATO transformed it into a much more intense uh, conflict, and now Russia uh, has to respond. Um, they're going to take equivalent of twenty percent of Ukraine's soil. that will now become part of Russia, and this may not be the end because Putin spoke of the necessity of freeing the Russian nation from the yoke of the uh, Ukrainian tyranny, uh, the Nazis that currently reside, which means. Places like Odessa and Kharkiv are also targeted, but Russia doesn't occupy them yet. So the first step is to create a new foundation of reality. Um, These territories now become the Russian motherland. And if they are attacked, Russia will not respond with a special military operation, but rather with operations uh, akin to war. Whatever title Russia wants to put on it, that's a legality that's up to the Russian government. But this will be. Gloves off, all hands free, total doctrine applied, um, and it will result in the absolute destruction of Ukrainian military and what's left of the Ukrainian state. That's the situation we're in. Russia has put NATO on notice that this is the new reality, and that if NATO wants to interfere, Russia is more than happy to destroy them as well. And if NATO wants to make this about something bigger than that, to threaten the Russian nation, that Russia has the means necessary to destroy. The entire West. Um, That means nuclear war. So the 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 stakes have been raised. Russia's gone all in right now, and the question is: Is the West willing to match those stakes? And I think the answer is no. Uh, So um, this is a game changer. This is uh, the beginning of the end, and uh, the end will be a complete Russian victory over Ukraine and a radical embarrassment of NATO. And because this is linked to an economic conflict, this will result in the not only defeat of the European Union, but more than likely the dismemberment of the European Union.
2: Let me ask you this, Scott. I think it's important to um, discuss... China in that last week on the sidelines at Samarkand, um we know that um uh, Xi Jinping and uh Vladimir Putin had a discussion. We also know that they had a discussion in February, just a week or two um before the beginning of this special military operation. Um your thoughts on the things that have happened in Taiwan, that conversation, and how China fits into this um puzzle.
8: Well we I think we we oftentimes fall victim into um focusing solely on the military conflict in Ukraine. And we lose sight of the fact that this is actually a global conflict, a global geopolitical economic uh, conflict between Russia, China, and its allies, and the United States, Europe, and their allies. Um, This was a conflict that was framed by uh, Vladimir Putin and uh, Xi Jinping when they met on February 4th in Beijing earlier this year, uh, where they said that, the rules-based international order that was being promulgated by the United States, in essence, a system where the world revolves around an American singularity, um, is being is going to be replaced by a law-based international order, uh, the foundation of which is the United Nations Charter, which uh, promotes a multipolarity where Russia, China, India, and other nations are all equal um, in, in, in the world. The United States is welcome to join if they want to. Um, but the the day of American hegemony is over, um, and, and that that's being challenged. Uh, so the, you know the the Russians and the Chinese have made it clear that's that's the war they're fighting on the big on the big picture, and we can never forget that the United States and uh, and NATO Europe <clears throat> and the allies in the Pacific are seeking to. Uh, Tie China's hands in the same way that they t- tried to ch- tie Russia's hands leading up to this current conflict. That is, threatening the imposition of um, punishing sanctions designed to deter any uh, potential Chinese military action. I'll just cut to the chase here. Uh, this morning, Xi Jinping instructed the Chinese military to be prepared to conduct real war. At the time of training for war is over. It's time to prepare for real war. I think you're right. Not only did Russia and China meet at the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, not only did China turn to Russia and say, we support you fully in what you're doing, but Russia turned to China and said, we support you fully, too. and You better act sooner rather than later, because right now, we put NATO on their back feet. They're the weakest they've ever been. Uh, If you move on Taiwan, we are literally presenting the United States. We're putting them in the horns of a dilemma. Um, Which one do they respond to? Because the Russian uh, Russian escalation demands an American response. But if America commits to a European response and then China invades Taiwan, America has nothing left over to respond to to Taiwan. And so I I think um, we're going to see China acting on Taiwan sooner rather than later.
0: You have a piece from last week. Biden's inaction has ensured North Korea's nuclearization. Donald Trump pried the door open for the potential denuclearization of Pyongyang, but it has since been slammed shut. Uh, if you could elaborate on that, and how does does that tangentially factor into this as well?
8: It it does. Uh, I mean, first of all, it's just a statement of the obvious. Uh, you know, Donald Trump, for for all of his sins, and there are many. Uh, and all of his faults, which could fill books. Uh, He was the only president ever to have the courage to meet face-to-face with Kim Jong-un, the the leader of North Korea, in an effort to break free of the um, impasse that existed regarding Korea's nuclear weapons and the state of peace on the Korean peninsula, and, and try and work constructively towards that end. He was ultimately sabotaged by whatever you want to call it, the deep state, the establishment, Mike Pompeo, um, you know uh, Bolton, um, John Bolton, they all sabotaged, sat in the back, uh, and, uh, and ultimately his, his gambit failed. But North Korea kept the door open. They kept saying, hey, we're not against this path, and maybe Biden wants to come and walk it with us. The Biden administration showed no interest in doing that, just the opposite. And North Korea shut the door, slammed it shut, locked it, and said, okay, we're done with denuclearization. We're now certifying our nuclear program as being you know, permanent, and we have a nuclear posture which permits us to launch a preemptive nuclear strike against any nation trying to threaten us. The United States and South Korea have always said, hey, Kim, you don't want to go to war with us because our first move will be to decapitate you. Um, and what Kim said is, you go from my throat, you all die. Everybody dies. We're going to nuke everything. Uh, the game changer. It, uh, it, it it fundamentally changes, um, you know, America's military posture in the region. Japan, South Korea now live under the permanent threat of nuclear annihilation. All thanks to the inaction of Joe Biden. But the other thing that's interesting here is that both Russia and China have failed to condemn North Korea. And I think what we're going to see is that, uh, to the contrary. Uh, both are going to move to recognize North Korea as an established nuclear power, and that um, in doing so, they're going to open up economic interaction with North Korea that immediately nullifies the economic sanctions uh, that the United States and the West were holding over North Korea. You know, this is similar to what happened with Iran. Iran just joined the the Shanghai Cooperation mm-hmm. Organization, mm-hmm. and in doing so, Iran has been basically given immunity to American sanctions. So the United States. Um, by continuing going down this path of sanctioning people, is actually sanctioned sanctioned itself into a corner. It did it with Russia. It's doing it with China. It did it with North Korea. It's doing it with Iran. This is a whole new world where all the nations are coming together in opposition to, um, you know, the the American singularity.
0: And final point as we get out, and I know we ran a little long, but I think as as Garland loves to say, General Winter. Rides his trusty steed across the European tundra. He's gonna. We're gonna see some of the EU nations break away because they're cold and they're hungry, and winter has is afoot, and they don't have any gas. And so that's that's also, I think, gonna show its ugly head. Uh, Twenty seconds.
8: So you're absolutely right. Uh, this this is an economic war, and part and parcel is the um, economic suicide that Europe is undergoing. And understand, this isn't what Russia's intent was. Mm -hmm. Russia didn't plan this. This is something that Europe did to itself, that the United States did to Europe. And uh, Russia's just sitting back and saying, if that's what you want to do, do it. Uh, And Europe will pay the price. I believe we're looking at a winter of revolutionary change in Europe. Europe will not be the same come spring as it is right now.
0: Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Evo Morales says U.S., the only pariah that provokes coups and wars. After warnings from the Biden administration to Russia against the use of nuclear weapons, Evo Morales recalled that the U.S. is the only one that has used such weapons against civilians. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. She's the co-editor of Popular Resistance, Doctor Margaret Flowers. As always, Margaret, welcome back.
9: Oh, thank you so much. It's always great to be with you, Wilmer and Garland.
0: Uh, so, your thoughts, uh, Evo Morales, kind of pointing out the obvious, but it's the obvious that a lot of people <laughs> seem you know, they don't they don't want to discuss.
9: Yeah. No, and it's, you know, it's great that these Latin American leaders are and uh, and others are, you know, starting to tell more of the truth about the United States, but yeah, it's absolutely true that when it comes to nuclear weapons, the United States has demonstrated clearly that it's more of a threat than other countries. You know, US and Russia have the most by far nuclear weapons in the world, but the United States starting under President Obama has been investing I think it like a trillion dollars to upgrade, apparently, our nuclear arsenal so that it can be more usable, uh, which is, you know, a scary thought. And then, of course, you know, with the, the nuclear treaties that the United States has withdrawn from the United Nations, uh, nuclear ban treaty that so many countries, I think it was more than 120 countries that voted for it in the United Nations, and now more than 50 countries that have ratified it, but the United States is not even talking about, you know, ratifying that treaty and starting to draw down its nuclear arsenal. So, Definitely, you know, and and the history, of course, as, as Evo Morales talked about, the United States, uh, you know, a- intervening in other countries in many ways, including aggressively, uh, makes us much more of a threat.
2: You know, I think it's important that this come, came from Evo Morales because you know, after what happened in in in. Um, In His own country, you know, wherein the U.S. has, you know, done so many coups and so many terrible things in Latin America. But we have, you know, Nicaragua and Venezuela and Cuba that have held out. And I think it was kind of really a turning point in South America when the Bolivian people, even though they faced, you know, massacres and everything else stood up and were able to take their country back.
9: That was an amazing turnaround, you know, where in 2019, the United States, through the Organization of American States, which we dominate, uh, you know, intervened to uh, basically delegitimize the Bolivian election. And that gave the space for uh, the coup government under Janine Añez to come into power. And of course, they were a far right, fascist, violent uh, government that for a year, you know, was as you said, there were massacres and all kinds of violence against the people, and then a massive uprising that took place in that country, which is, I think, more than seventy percent indigenous uh, people that came together and were able in one year to turn that coup around was pretty amazing. And now, of course, Jenny Nanya is in jail, and members of her government are on trial for the acts that they, you know, did.
0: In this Orinoco Tribune piece, it says, what we talked about at the top, Morales saying, the only pariah is the U.S. that provokes coups and wars in the world. Faced with the accusations that Russia could use nuclear weapons during its military operation in Ukraine, the Kremlin has pointed out it does not seek to do so. This while— Washington is insisting that it can. Secretary of State Blinken acknowledged in August that his country could use weapons in any war in extreme circumstances. It's interesting that as we look at what's going on in Taiwan, the United States, uh, Joe Biden said on Sunday, if China attacks Taiwan. But China isn't talking about attacking Taiwan. Putin says, look. If you keep escalating this thing, we're a nuclear power, you're a nuclear power, you could have a problem. That gets misinterpreted as, oh, Putin is threatening to use nuclear weapons. It seems to be the United States, not only in its action, but in its narrative, that keeps escalating these things almost to the point of wanting, seeming to create self-fulfilling prophecies.
9: Yeah, that's the scary thing. I mean, that's why we're in the situation that we're in right now in Ukraine, right? Because, you know, Russia kept saying, look, we have this ceasefire agreement, let's abide by it. You know, you made this deal about not escalating or expanding NATO. You know, why don't we do that? And, you know, and meanwhile, the U.S. was backing the Ukrainian army, providing training and weapons, and that army was killing, you know, thousands of ethnic Russians in the, in the Donbas region. You know, it just, it's, The United States seems to have only like one approach, and that's to be the big bully that tries to, you know, think it's going to frighten everyone else to, you know, behave and and cower away from it. And more and more, we're seeing countries that are calling that out and just saying, look, no, this this is not okay." Russia has never said it was intending to use Nuclear weapons. You know, quite the opposite. It said that it was not intending to use nuclear weapons. Uh, but you know, this is scary. The situation with Russia is scary uh, because that's escalating the situation with uh, China is scary because the United States, as you know, is provoking conflict there using Taiwan as the proxy, much like Ukraine against Russia in that situation.
0: How much of this rhetoric do you really see as being for domestic consumption as opposed to international? Uh, consumption in that frightening the American people and fertilizing the ground for fueling and funding the military-industrial complex?
9: Well, that's always a part of it, right? I mean, building uh, consensus in the United States against these countries like Russia, like China. Uh, that's the way that the United States is able to get away with this aggression and these escalations, and then you know justify "quote unquote" you know it's it's military spending, which is all going into the profits of the military industrial complex, and there's all kinds of ties between that and and uh, people within the Pentagon or formerly within the Pentagon. Um, so it's you know it's a huge huge racket. We're we're you know, we've talked about this before. We're an empire economy. We're a military economy in the United States. And you have to have conflict to keep that going. But I think that it is scary to see the U.S. actually moving on that. You know, Biden Uh, Moved on this in ways that, you know, President Trump certainly didn't, even though we had the same national security strategy under the Trump administration of great power conflict. Uh, I think Biden's being reckless and uh, that's concerning to me.
2: Uh, moving back to South America, latest poll shows increase for Lula and possibility of first round victory. Um, the uh, former president Lula da Silva of the Workers' Party of Brazil is now at 47 uh, percent uh, in Jair Bolsonaro of the, of the Liberal Party is polling at about 31 percent. Not only is it a blowout, he may possibly win this in the first round. Your thought about what's going on. And uh, let me add this. And there's, uh, of course, notable concerns that the U.S. or other uh, outside entities could try to interfere. Your thoughts on uh, what's happening with Lula da Silva
9: well us interference in latin american elections
2: almost <laughs>
9: almost, a, almost a given it seems like and you know and it's no different in the situation in brazil you know going all the way back to the removal of the president dilma rousseff and also uh, going after uh, lula with this this false prosecution against him uh, the car wash you know conspiracy and uh you know it's It's concerning because we've got some interesting articles that are out there. I think uh, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting has a really good one looking at public broadcasting system in the U.S. and BBC in the U.K. putting out propaganda for Bolsonaro, who, you know, it sounds all right, like the liberal party he 's a far right fascist he's he 's uh, an extremely scary person and uh, and this is who the United States is backing in Brazil, of course, you know behind closed doors but the, and the media is complicit with this, so it 'll be a real uh turnaround I think for Brazil if Lula is successful in winning this presidency, you know despite these odds against him of the you know the whole propaganda machine. Uh, but that's, you know, again, it's a people coming together and rising up and organizing to change the situation in their country.
0: What about the concerns of a Lula victory? And then as there are articles now discussing Bolsonaro and a coup, and especially in the context of understanding that Brazil is just, what, 30 years removed from uh, being controlled by the military. So the whole constant, the whole uh, constitutional construct and concept hasn't been able to really take hold there, Uh, your, your thoughts about concerns of a coup.
9: Yeah. And, you know, and that was the situation in Bolivia. It's why, you know, it's the difference between Venezuela in 2002 when they tried to conduct a coup against Chavez. And within 48 hours, the people turned that around because Chavez came from the military. He had strong ties to the military. Uh, what, what Abel Morales didn't have in Bolivia was he did not have that control over the military. And so the coup was successful there. I don't know what Lula's uh, relationship is with the military and police in Brazil and and what they would do in a situation where Balsa to try to conduct a coup there. Uh, but that's certainly a possibility.
2: I do, don't you, I do think that the distance between um, Bolsonaro and um, Lula widening, I do think that the popular support makes it the, the more, especially if he crosses 50 percent. There's two ways to look at it. I think that makes it less likely of a coup rather than more likely. I've heard both arguments. We got about 45 seconds.
9: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's always the important thing is that the people can turn popular opinion and make a coup seem less uh, likely to be successful if they're able to show greater support for LULA. That would be somewhat of a protective factor.
0: Dr. Margaret Flowers, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.